this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Have you ever wondered how to get the attention of a large acquirer, some corporate giant who you would never have the opportunity to meet unless they approached you? Have a think about the way you market your business, in particular for which key terms you rank for in a search. When an acquirer wants to invest in an industry like yours, one of the first things they're going to do is figure out who are the big players in your industry. And if you rank at the top of those search listings, no matter how big or small your company is, you may get their attention, which is exactly what happened to my next guest, Peter Carlin. He was in the online learning space. And despite just having 24 employees at the time of the acquisition, he got the, the attention of a large corporate player who wanted to invest in online learning. He wouldn't have done it without ranking at the top of Google searches. Here to tell you the rest of Peter's story is Peter Carlin. Peter Carlin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Really great to be here. It's great to have another Irishman on the show because um, we've only had a few, but all of our episodes with Irishmen have been world class. So no, no pressure, but uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks. I'll try and uh, I'll try and meet that bar. <laughs> your countrymen, you've got to make sure you level it up for for you guys. So you're you're based in in Belfast. Yes, based Is that in right? Belfast. Belfast and Northern Ireland. Uh, we've off, we had offices in both Belfast and in Dublin. Got it. And how does a little company in Belfast become a world leader in e-learning? I got to learn this story. So tell me about this company, Logic Earth. I want to hear about it. What, what, what did you guys do? Well, uh, 10 years ago, in the middle of the worst financial crisis that I can remember, uh, my business partner and I, Paul McKay, left uh, employment. We were working in a, an IT training business um, we had too much knowledge and we had to put it somewhere. So we took the brave and crazy decision at the time to leave, uh, to leave employment and start up a business. Uh, and really what we wanted to do was to bring transformation to learning. We had seen for so long, um, just this, the spend uh, was the options that buyers had was just so narrow and we wanted to bring choice and transformation. You, okay. So when you say transformation learning, I, I'm reading between the lines here. You're talking about e-learning, right? So, uh, you know, everyone tr thinks about learning in the context of a classroom, but you're moving that online. Is that, is that right? And, and doing courses, online courses? Yeah, so what we, what we do is we bring a very contemporary toolkit to how to do that. So we bring the knowledge, the tools, the people, the expertise, the content, and lots of methodologies into one place to give clients a huge amount of options to do that because primarily we think of two things, classroom and an e-learning course, and, and that's not how we do it. There's, there's a big mile-wide gulf between those two things, and we can fill it with really, really nice stuff. Great. And so your content is richer than a traditional e-learning course, and it tries to get as close to a physical course as possible? Well, yeah, I think, I think what we've got to think about is how do, how do people consume knowledge at home? And at home, you're on YouTube or you're on, a, you're on a curation site or you're on something else. And we're trying to bring those experiences into the methodologies that we use within the corporate uh, sector to try and really engage learners in, in the programs. And what was the business model? How do you guys make money? Well, uh, we, we did a number of things. Uh, we, we consulted uh, on strategy and advice. Um, we also sell 
infrastructure. So we sell learning platforms and large learning libraries. Uh, and we were, um, we had partnerships with the best companies across the world. Companies like Skillsoft, who are a massive company, and we were a partner for them in, in Europe. Uh, and then thirdly, we created bespoke uh, complex learning programs for our clients. Um, so that, that was uh, full design from, from the ground up all the way through to build and delivery. So bespoke, meaning custom programs for clients. You had a specialty, though, as I understand it, in the pharmaceutical space. Is that right? Um, well, very much so now in our, in our new guys, we do. Uh, but we did, have a, we did have a medical writing service uh, in the business, um, helping our pharma clients. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Oh, pharma. Sorry. Yep. Got it. Okay. And so you were doing custom programs for them. You were also reselling Skillsoft and other sort of platform solutions so that you didn't own the platform, but you were, you were a partner for them and and selling. Yeah, very much a a value added reseller whereby we could, you know, introduce those solutions and add a lot of value to, to the projects. Got it. And then you mentioned there were third, third revenue stream, but what was the third one? I've forgotten. Yeah, so the, the, the first one was around strategy advice strategy. Uh, consulting. The second one was around infrastructure, around those, those platforms and content services. And then the third one was really about building those uh, complex, customized uh, learning solutions for our clients. Got it. Got it. And, and it, would it be typical in a client engagement that, that you would include all three of those? So there'd be some consulting up front, they'd choose a platform which you would sell them, and then there would be the implementation. Would that be a typical engagement or are people buying yeah. sort of bits and pieces? It's, it's one of two typical engagements. So quite often the client will have their own infrastructure and mm-hmm. we'll, just, we'll just make sure we're using it properly and, and building the learner experience and content around it. But if, if those clients do not have the appropriate um, technology or infrastructure, then we, we can supply it as part of that service. Got it. That's helpful for sure. And so how big did you get this company before you decided it was, it was maybe time to sell? Yes, yeah, so we were up to uh, 21 people. Um, we, we had a team of learning designers, learning technology consultants, uh, instructional designers and digital designers. And, um, we were doing pretty well on our own, but we were struggling really to break through to the next level. Uh, to get what does that mean, that, break through to the next level? What does that mean? Well, we were struggling to get into the bigger accounts uh, we, from our base in, in Northern Ireland and in Dublin. Um, you know, it, it was we were expert at everything that we were doing, but we, we just weren't able to crack that um, business development model. Uh, and I think that's kind of where the next logical step came from through, through the acquisition. Got it. So some of the big uh, clients, you were looking at some of the big multinational pharma companies and they, they just weren't giving you the time, kind of time of day. Is that right? Yeah, they're just, uh, it's just very difficult to, to break through and send to that next level. And, um, you know, albeit we, we were making progress. Um, I think our strategy required that we, we sped that up as best we could. So who was doing the, sale, the selling, Peter? Was it you and Paul or did you have salespeople? Yeah, well, if you think of selling in two ways, there's a looking after existing clients. So uh, our model was that our learning consultants would look after the clients. We did not need to sell to them. We just needed to build brilliant things for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a business development point of view, we, we did have a business development team, but primarily it was Paul and I. And, and laterally, in the later stages, it was done through a, a very contemporary digital marketing strategy. So we put a lot of time and effort into into digital marketing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. You had the, the classic sort of hunter farmer model where yeah. the learning people did the farming. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. So what was the, you were trying to break through to the next level. Um, when did potentially selling the business sort of become the most logical solution? I'm sure you considered other strategies for breaking through to the next sort of these larger accounts. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I suppose over over the years, um, we have been approached several times. Uh, and in the first couple of times, it, it was quite a surprise. It was a nice feeling. You know, people were noticing you and, and, and uh, trying to make offers. But we, we never we never gelled. We never, you know, really got to an offer that was uh, good for us. And I suppose after the third time, 
we were thinking, well, this is pretty consistent. Um, we, we suspect that this is going to happen again. Uh, and we were very happy just to, you know, understand that, wait it out, because we weren't going to sell to somebody we didn't like. We weren't going to sell where the strategy was wrong or where there wasn't a meeting of values. Uh, so we just suspected that time, time would deliver the right answer for us. And, and sure enough, that did happen uh, when we met this new group. Let's get into the, the offers that you got. Um, you mentioned there were three primary like sort of approaches prior to the one yeah. you actually sort of engaged with. So you mentioned, I'd be curious to know sort of valuation multiples, like how they were valuing the company. Um, not necessarily the number, but sort of the, it was it a multiple of EBITDA or whatever. Um, and, and also you mentioned you, you didn't, want to proceed with someone that there were, where there wasn't a cultural fit. I'd be curious to know what you were looking for in a cultural fit. So let's, let's do the first question first, multiple. So what did they, what were they offering uh, on a multiple? Was it a, on revenue or EBITDA? How did they structure? Yeah, well, I think there was, there was two different types of uh, offer during those years. And uh, one of them was based on EBITDA, a multiplier on EBITDA. And, and there was one very cheeky offer um, from a broker uh, on that. Um, Why do you say cheeky? Well, I, I think, uh, and again, this is one of the things you learn. Um, we were approached and, and we spent quite a lot of time sharing information with them. Uh, and we felt that the approach was genuine. Uh, and then at the last minute, um, we were introduced to a more senior person who, who, who turned up in a, a meeting full of fanfare and, and offered us basically a salary and, uh, and this dream that the company was, who would be buying us would be fantastic for us. Um, so we, we closed that negotiation down quite quickly. So, they, so let me get this straight. So they came to you. They, did they put a number on the table before the senior person came in and basically tried to hire you? Yes, yeah, they were intimating that uh, there was a multiplier on the table. It started with three, three and a half times EBITDA, um, which we weren't entertaining. So he started at three and a half times EBITDA, and then the senior guy comes in and, and takes the three and a half times EBITDA off the table? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And says, well, what we'd really like to do, Peter, is, is hire you. Well, he, yeah, he went to the uh, lowest common uh, point in the thing, going, you're not worth this and you're not worth that. And... Um, you're worth a salary and uh, this is this is what's on the table take it or leave it and uh, we kind of had a we kind of that's mind-boggling yeah this, how how big a company do you have at this stage oh uh, i i think we were you know we were turning over about two million dollars we had about 15 people uh, on the team uh, right still quite early on but um it, it was just one of those funny experiences but it you know it leaves you with uh uh, a good experience for the next time. But you know what? I think it's actually very um, educational because a lot of the listeners to this program would be fielding those sorts of uh, approaches right now um, in the in the wake of COVID or in the midst of COVID, I should say, a lot of businesses have been, you know, uh, their performance is down and there's a lot of bottom feeders out there trying to buy companies for pennies on the dollar. And they're using these pitches, uh, good cop, bad cop, where uh, kind of a good cop rolls in and says, we'd like to, you know, offer you three and a half times EBITDA. Bad cop comes in and says, you're worthless. So what was your emotional reaction to the senior guy coming in and saying, well, you're not worth anything? I, I, think, uh, I, I think I went through a few seconds of anger going, you know, you've completely wasted our time. And then, and then it just turned to, uh, into laughter because, you know, I just wrote it off as, a, as an interesting experience that it, that wouldn't happen again, you know? So, um, you know, it really taught, taught us to kind of approach you know, the conversations in a very different way the next time, you know, to really just suss out um, the seriousness of the approach and, and who was behind it and, and why and ask all the really hard questions up front. What questions can you ask up front to determine the seriousness of an acquisition offer? I think you can be very, very blunt about everything. Um, I, I think it's they're coming to you in most cases. Um, um, they've made the approach, and I think it's okay to ask who's funding this. Um, what is who's funding strategy? it? Yeah. What is their strategy? Um, what bits of uh, my business do they like? 
which bits of our business do they not like, um, how they see a strategy going forward in terms of uh, growth uh, and integration, uh, and you know, and ask about timing. You know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't put any uh, any restrictions on what you can ask. And were those questions not ones that you asked the initial? you know, person who put the three and a half times number on the, on the table? No, we, we, we didn't. Uh, we didn't ask as many questions as we should have, but it's definitely, you know, you learn, you learn through your uh, experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why we do this show. So that's, that's helpful. So you had the cheeky offer. Um, what were the, the subsequent offers? Were they around that three and a half times EBITDA or was, what was the range you were starting to kind of triangulate around? Yeah, I think that, I think that was you know that was a starting point. But, um, you know there was a trend there around that starting point around that three and a half number. Um, it's obviously an open you know an opening to negotiation which should move. Uh, the next offer came in and you know there were shares on the table of the other business, uh, and and again that wasn't a model that suited us. Um, Why not? You know, they, they were much nicer people, but it wasn't a model that suited us at the time. What was it about taking shares in their company that was not a fit? Well, I suppose um, uh, we weren't 100% sure of their three to five year strategy. Um, I, I don't think we had an objection to taking shares as such, um, but we just weren't 100% sure of where their strategy was going and, and felt you know, it was a bit of a risk uh, for our own personal outcome. And when you take shares as... Uh, compensation, I guess you also have to try to determine how they're valuing those shares. Did you get into that at all and and try to see what their valuation model was for their own shares to determine whether that was undervaluing them or overvaluing them? Yeah, well, I think think we kind of were using our our gut feel quite a lot as well um, to say like we really like these people we could really like their their point of view and their technology and and where they were going but you know we weren't sure of the future strategy in terms of their share growth um, and, and couldn't see how that was going to return give us a return got it got it so how did you end up going from sort of reacting to offers to proactively kind of considering them? What was, what was your next step to sort of formalize your decision to sell? Well, I th- I, we didn't actually make that jump. Um, mm. We, I think what we could see was there was a consistency of approach. There's maybe an approach every 12, 13 months. Uh, and the first few times it was quite a surprise. It was a nice feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Um, we couldn't find the fit, but what we guessed was that you know that sort of consistency would increase because we, we were we were really punching above our weight in terms of our digital marketing. So our brand was getting noticed worldwide, uh, and that those approaches, you know, we we did get another approach, and it started off as a a conversation around a strategic partnership. But as as we got to know them and they got to know us, we could see that the fit. Um, was fantastic and real creative group of people. Uh, and then the discussion um, progressed from there, from being a strategic partnership into an m Got it. When you say punching above your weight in terms of digital media, describe that. What does that mean? Um, well, we, we, were, we were a small company. Um, we had big ideas. We had big ambitions. We have a very, you know, strong proposition about what we want to do and what we want to achieve. We wanted to change the world of, of corporate learning and we wanted to do it quickly. Um, so we, we put a lot of effort into, you know, an SEO strategy, uh, into campaigns. We put in, in a marketing automation system. We rebuilt our website and we were blogging nearly twice a week. Um, you know, so our, our messages and our marketing statistics were growing and growing and growing. You know, the website visits, the, uh, the number of keywords that we were ranking for and the traffic to the site was just increasing every day. And there was great conversations going on around the world about, about what we were talking about. Um, so we, we looked bigger than what we were. The, the other companies that you were ranking with, so if somebody typed in corporate learning, you were up there at the top of the search. How big were those other companies that you were kind of competing for that mind share 
were they much larger? Yeah, well, you can imagine it's a it's probably a three hundred billion dollar market worldwide for for corporate learning, and you can imagine the competition uh, in that space. Yeah, uh, we were competing with the world the best, uh, and companies who were much more established than we were. Mm-hmm. Um, so after you know after a while, our strategy was kicking in. We were ranking up. Um, up you know, with the big, the big companies. Fantastic. And how did you learn those skills? Did you work with a third party advertising agency, like a digital marketing agency? Did you have someone in house? Were you doing it? Well, we, we're very deliberate about what we do. We, we run, um, I don't know if you've heard of the traction model for running a business. You know, we have uh, yearly goals. We've got 90-day goals. We've appointed a senior team. We've got the right people in the right seats. We've got a clear focus. So one of those brave decisions that we made to invest in was in digital marketing, and, and we recruited um, a, a digital marketing expert and built, you know, for a small company, we had two or three people primarily working in marketing alone. Uh, and that that was a big decision for us. Um, it was a, It was a brave move. Uh, and it really paid off. Yeah, because it's not like hiring a salesperson or one of your learning farmers, like where you can directly draw a line to their, you know, your increased sales or your increased profitability. This was a bit of a flyer. It absolutely was. Um, but, you know, it was our attempt to, uh, you know, break through to the next level in terms of revenues uh, and the next level of clients, um, you know, without being acquired, you know, so, uh, but it, it really, really paid off for us. But I think, I think we had put a lot of effort into it. We, we, we built the business around the marketing plan um, rather than hiring a marketing person to do something. We, we re-engineered the business around it. That's really fascinating. So how did your ultimate acquirer come to learn about you? Were, did you hire an M&A professional to sort of shop the business? Did they come to you? What was that like? Well, they, they came to us. I think in, um, you know, as part of building that brand presence, um, we had appeared on in some industry reports. Um, we've appeared on a, on a really nice uh, competitive grid developed by the Fosway group who are experts in, in the learning field. Hmm. Uh, so I think we were appearing on uh, more and more publications and more industry reports. Uh, and we were just, we just had a presence because of the effort that we were putting into building the brand. Fantastic. And so their original approach was, Hey, let's partner. When did the conversation like, and what triggered the conversation evolving from let's partner to let's acquire you? Yeah, so the, the, the company that acquired us are called the Creative Engagement Group, and, and they have a, a number of agencies, but they have a very big client base. And um, um, they could see that their clients were requiring more and more and more services in, in digital learning in particular uh, and in learning design. Um, and, you know, I think they're, they were looking for a partner who could fill what they call that white space in their, in their client set. Um, so we... We met them in London. They they came over to Belfast. They we had lots of discussions around what a strategic partnership could look like. They met the team. Um, um, they they could see our strategy. They could see our enterprise operating system working in terms of our goals and our, our traction model. Um, and and we we started to learn about them. We we were able to you know inquire deeply about what they were doing about their approach and their values and their culture and their people and we could just see this really lovely picture building up of the the approach that they have it's, it's more and what did they what did they see as the strategic value like what what made you a strategic acquisition for them well they could see that uh, through acquiring us that we could slot right into their business uh, into their strategic product set and service set and answer that question which is learning within their corporate client base so they wanted to sell your services to their customers yes yeah primarily it wasn't to get your customers it was to have another thing to sell to their existing customers exactly. yeah. and they're a big uh, marketing agency and they have lots you know big fortune 500 type large enterprise clients Yes, absolutely. Got it. Okay. And so how did they value the company? I'd be particularly interested in, you had these three very disparate lines of revenue, right? The consulting, reselling the platform, and the actual bespoke uh, creation. 
what what was the did they get into how they valued those three different revenue streams? Yeah, they um, you know they spent a lot of time up to trying to understand the proposition that we were bringing to our client base. Um, um, I think you know reselling software licenses and, and content was pretty new to them, but they, we we spent a lot of time explaining why that was beneficial. Uh, they could fully understand the consulting piece. And the reason they were buying us was really for the third bit, which is that being able to design complex learning programs for large audiences, for large clients. Um, so, you know, they got it pretty quickly. Um, you know, I think, you know, what they had to do was really knit together the picture of their other agencies and how we would fit in and and having that piece where the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts mm-hmm. in many ways. And, and that's pretty much what we've been doing since, since we started with them. You know, e-learning is such a hot industry. And I would imagine, as you've described, the primary driver of your value in their eyes were these uh these learning, uh, these learning professionals, the, the, the designers and the implementers, the people, how did you go about retaining them? Because I would imagine those employees were very highly sought after, you know, often recruited or attempted to be recruited away. How did you, how did you retain them? Well, I, I think, um, because we are very structured in what we do and we're very deliberate in our and the, the traction model that we have is that our the team are all involved in the decisions that we make. They're all involved in executing those decisions and helping us move on. Um, we're also involved in really highly creative projects. Uh, and I think, you know, I think they really love our client base and the complexity and the creativity of what we do. So they could see that by joining the group and they all got to met, meet um, the other teams uh, and they all got to understand what the other company was doing. Uh, they could see that that level of creativity was really just going to keep increasing. Um, so I think we've, we've got a really strong value proposition for, for our team as well as, as for our clients. Got it. So this sort of flirting gets serious when they move from uh you know, partnership to acquisition. At what point in the process did they put an offer in front of you? Well, it was a, there was a good number of months just just getting to know each other, which was nice. It was a nice time period. Um, um, so later on in that, several months later, there was, you know, they discussed about a, an acquisition. And How did that come up in conversation? Do you remember, was it over a pint or a coffee or what? How did that come up? How did it sort of raise its specter? Yeah, it might have been over a pint of Guinness somewhere. And it it just felt like the the next, you know, logical step to take. Um, We were equally both interested in both routes um, at the time. And, um, and, you know, the, the first thing we had to do was really agree ahead of terms um, about what that, the nature of the country, the, the deal might look like. And ahead of terms for our North American listeners is like a letter of intent, right? It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a set, it's a deal sheet. It's a set of deal terms that would, that would uh, provide the, the construct for a deal. Absolutely, yes. It's a it's a general agreement on the next on the before you get into the detail. And so, w- what was the nature of the head of terms? Like, what did what did you guys discuss? What did you agree to? Well, um, we we discussed how the the construct of the the financial arrangement might work. Um, you know, there very there's lots of options on the table, uh, and, and we went through each of them. Uh, I think we all came to what- conclusion. What were you considering when you say there are lots of options? What were the, what were the range of options you guys were, were discussing in terms well, of the structure financially? Yeah, essentially, it's looking at um, a multiplier on the EBITDA is is generally the way things go. But um, um, we we were also able to look at the future. You know, over the next three years, what could we do? Uh, and we discussed how uh, the the contract could take that into consideration. So we we, we looked at a future earning strategy. Got it. So kind of the difference between upfront cash versus uh, earn out. Um, and, and did you, was it an earn out that you discussed primarily or were there other ways that you could participate in the future or is it really focused in on the earn out piece? Yeah, well, the earn out is, uh, you know, was looking at the EBITDA of, of the business 
in the future term, so in the next three years. Um, so that's where the, the calculation came to. Got it. And where did you, did you and Paul land on the importance of sort of cash up front versus, you know, future earnout? Did you guys have a number in mind or a percentage? Like what was, what was important to you? Yeah, I think, you know, there's lots of variables uh, in this type of calculation. And, you know, I think you have to be very content to put your ability to go in and acquire, you know, get into that client base and, and make uh, make progress with it. Uh, and we spent a lot of time just talking about the practical aspects of integrating with the new sales team, um, you know, integrating with other parts of the business, further developing the value proposition, how that might go down, the type of clients that they have, the relationships with those clients. Um, so I, I suspect that 90% of our discussions were based at that very practical level about how are we going to do this and how will that work um, more so than the numbers, the kind of the numbers looked after themselves mostly. In what way did they look after themselves? I mean, were you, were you satisfied with the upfront cash that, that if the or not didn't come through, it was okay? Or what did you, what do you mean by the numbers sort of took care of themselves? Yeah, well, I think there, there's, there's obviously a balance between upfront cash and, and the future state. Now, this is before COVID. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we, had to take, um, we had to take a really practical view of what may or may not happen in terms of the future value and get the balance right between the upfront cash and, um, and the future potential. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what, I mean, if you're, if you're unable to answer this question for your own, in your own sake, what, if you were advising an entrepreneur, um, what do you think is a reasonable proportion of kind of upfront versus earn out that they would, they should be um, happy with or consider? Yeah, I would, I would find it hard to answer that specifically, not, not because I'm withholding information. It's more, it, it's more, you have to be really sure that the fit is right, the cultural fit, the strategy is right, and and the outcome is right for you. And if if you if you can really get to that point where you're happy with all of those things, then I think you'll you'll know what the calculation is going to be. Um, I suspect I suspect though that you'd want to ask for as much as you can get away with. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Yeah, because the natural inclination is is for the acquirer to put as little cash up front and put it all sort of on the future of the deal. And yeah, I, I think what we learned because like, everything is a negotiation. Absolutely, every element is a negotiation. So you just got to be prepared um, to negotiate every single aspect of of the agreement. Yeah, but but you were fairly friendly with these guys. It sounds like you've been talking about a strategic partnership and. In what way was your coziness a liability when it came to negotiating the actual deal terms? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it uh, restricted us. I think what I think what we learned to do, and, and looking back, what I'd maybe do slightly differently is just to make sure that everybody, like on both sides, have all of their negotiating points raised in one place. Um, I, you know. I've gone through this in the past as well, and you could see that where sometimes those points were dripped into the discussion, uh, and it wasn't through a bad intent. Uh, it's just the way it happened. So, I think if I was to do it again, I'd make sure that all the negotiating points are, are you know, brought to the table as quickly as possible in a short period of time, um, where you can see the entire picture in one go, and but still be able to to address each point. And what would and what would be on your list of negotiation points to make sure we're covered in the first conversation? So obviously, the overall price is one. What were the other? What are the other four or five kind of terms that you think are important to get up front? Yeah, well, I think it's important then because we we were also interested in the health and nature of the business afterwards. So it was really negotiating where how we were going to grow the business, not only within their own client base but out to the world. Um, we were also interested in how they were going to deal with the team and the terms and conditions of the staff to make sure that they were looked after. Uh, at the same time as we were negotiating a sale, we were also negotiating a, uh, an employment contract. Uh, for yourselves. For ourselves, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's really it's lots of different things. 
And did you get the employment contracts squared away as part of the, the head of terms or was that something you dealt with after the fact? It was dealt, uh, it was dealt with in line with the detailed contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the share purchase agreement. Yeah, yeah, that's often the case. Of course, a lot of you know things like uh, non-compete and you know uh, salary and and tenure. Those are big drivers of the of the employment yeah. agreement, and that can that can be a, a major bone of contention. Absolutely. Was there anything if you would have done it differently? You mentioned that you would have probably try to get those things done in one conversation in your specific example, was there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah. Like what, I think, um, the other thing I would have done very differently was just taking tax advice at a much earlier stage. Um, what would you, what would you, what did you come to know about the tax implications of the sale? Well, um, what we found out was, was too late, you know, that the things that we had to consider about, what did you, what did you find out? Well, it was pretty much about UK capital gains tax, um, and the and how that works in detail, uh, and the timing of how all of that works, um, you know, and when, uh, you know, what constitutes capital gains and what doesn't. Um, so it was really complicated. Um, I know in North America there's this concept that again I don't know if it's the same in the UK, but there's um, there's this concept of buying assets or shares. Uh, shares are considered capital gains, and again I'm going way beyond my pay grade in talking <laughs> about this, but but uh, but can be treated differently depending on the way check, you know the tax jurisdiction you're in. W- was that the same in your case? They, they they were buying essentially your assets, which didn't allow you to take advantage of the the capital gains exemption or preferred tax rates? Is that? Yeah, there was, uh, there were different uh, parts to it. Okay. Know, it's very much based on the initial consideration versus the the duration of the earnout. Um, so my advice would be get a really good tax advisor early in the process when you, when you know when things are making momentum or gathering momentum is. is yeah. Before you agree to that head of terms, that, that letter of intent, well before that, you really want to engage a tax accountant to talk about um, even in some cases, at least in North America, there are some provisions where you have to hold shares for a certain period of time in order to enjoy that preferred capital gains exemption. And so you, you even want to talk to a, an accountant even before you know, years before really that you, you're ready to pull the trigger just to make sure that, that you're taking advantage of every sort of tax. I don't want to call them loopholes because they're not loopholes. They're tax, uh, you know, the tax system as it's written. Yeah. I think you really have to consider that, you know, the, the due diligence, um, the agreeing the heads of terms uh, and going through the final negotiations on the contract takes a lot of time. At the same time, you're trying to run a business and grow a business, um, and then, you know, throwing in tax complications at the last minute is not what you want to do, you know. No. Let me ask you, how has COVID impacted your business? Well, it's funny because uh, we, we set up the business in the middle of a financial crisis and sold it in April of this year in the middle of a pandemic. You have a thing for uh, disasters. <laughs> yeah. um, and COVID has meant that we've all had to work from home. We've all had to... Um, figure out how to do that and also deal with a lot of companies who are speeding up their transformation of learning and speeding up that move out of the physical classroom and into the virtual into the virtual world of delivering learning um, so we have just been absolutely flat out helping clients do that i would imagine yeah because everybody's building a you know, learning course of some sort. Everybody's got to teach their employees that they would have relied on classroom training in the past. Yeah. So it's been good for your business. It's been good. You know, and you know, we're trying to, we're trying to educate our clients not to move from a physical classroom just to a virtual classroom because we are all zoomed out already. Do you not put mm-hmm. in front of more cameras? Yeah. Um, so we're giving them those really contemporary um, methods in the middle of all that to to allow people to self learn and, and work, learn from each other. Got it. You know, I think I want to go back to the deal terms for a second because I think a lot of the people that listen to this show will have some level of earnout associated with their sale. Some, you know, some will try to negotiate as much upfront, but others will have to sort of deal with an earnout. Um, now, of course, earnouts can go fabulously well. There are lots of examples of you know, incredible payouts. Uh, equally, there are some 
where it's a challenge because uh, it's it's hard to run a company within another company. So first of all, on the upside, um, were you able to strike or how did you structure things uh, so that you could enjoy the upside? In other words, is there a cap to, to your ultimate payout? Uh, if things go spectacularly well, it, it, you know, can, could you, is there a limit to how well you could do or is it sort of sky's the limit? Well, I, I think, um, I think most people starting a business would have a naive notion that somebody will come along someday and just offer you a big pot of cash sure. for you to sell it. And I, I think unless you're a real, you know, in a real spectacular industry where that happens, um, then that's fine, but don't expect it. You know, what to expect is a tough negotiation. It's going to look, you know, they're going to come at it from, from their best point of view. Um, everything will have to be negotiated and, you know, expect a cap, you know, expect lots of different things that you haven't thought of to be brought into those negotiations uh, and don't expect it to be easy. Um, what, what would you tell people to be aware of in in this kind of bucket or this category of, you know, things to things to that you probably aren't ready or re- you're not expecting, like what sorts of things would you expect to see in that bucket? Yeah. Well, I think if you, um, I think you have to take um, steps to prepare yourself for a sale and that's what we've done a pretty good job at over the years. Cause you know, we wanted to be organized. We wanted to be, ahead of ourselves um, whenever the right moment came. And you have to have a real clear vision of what you do. You have to have a real clear understanding of why you make a difference in in your industry. You have to be able to demonstrate that. You have to be able to demonstrate your focus and your commitment to growth uh, and have all of those things ready. And when it comes to the sale, if you are very well prepared and have all of that really in good shape and well thought out, then the process that you go through will be much more um, robotic. It'll be much more uh, one thing after another and being able to get over lots of the simple hurdles are probably in the most complicated hurdles quite easily. Um, but you've got to expect difficult conversations around valuation, around what your your makeup of your clients are worth, around your recurring revenues um, and being able to you know demonstrate why you're in good shape. Got it. Got it. So, uh, as you approach your earn out, you know, expect the, the acquirer to have some sort of cap to your potential earnings, even in a spectacular outcome. What about the downside risk? Uh, things we've heard of on this show is, you know, I walked into an earn out with, with the best intentions and then, you know, the acquirer recast my profit and loss statement with a bunch of head office expenses, or, you know, they promised that they'd get me in to see X, Y, and Z client. When I asked the sales rep to introduce me, he or she said, no friggin' way. And we can introduce you to our best clients. Uh, I don't care what your earnout is. That's my client. Um, I mean, I'm sure you heard similar horror stories. Yeah, like I, I think um, I think based on prior experience, we asked the very explicit questions around how PNL would be calculated, how you know we asked about um, internal costs and how they would be. You know, we we shouldn't have been expecting any other internal costs that we weren't used to, uh, and to, all of those points had to be negotiated, uh, and there was a lot of detail behind it. And I think you know, the heads of terms are pretty easy. Uh, the hardest part is the detail in the share purchase agreement. You know, the absolute detail, and you need to, you really need to find the time to clear your head and to go into the nth level of detail about what might happen uh, in terms of those things. Um, just, to answer your other point about, you know, learning and being offered to be put in front of clients, um, you know, I think. I think you got to expect that you still have to go in and work hard. <laughs> hmm. uh, you have to go in and prove yourself. You have to go in and integrate well into the rest of the business. You have to go in and build relationships. You know, don't be naive in terms of thinking that things are going to be handed to you on a plate. It is really up to you to make the most of it, as well as being helped and supported by the acquirer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. You know, 
I guess some people would look at this and say, Peter, why, you know, if you were going to have to do this earn out and it was going to be a significant part of your life, I'm assuming it's a three year or what's the length? Yeah, it's three year. Three year. Like why sell? Why, like why not continue to operate independently? Um, there must have been another way to crack into some of those other big clients. If you know, if you're giving up your freedom, you know, it's a very, um, it can be a very uh, uncomfortable position for a lot of entrepreneurs to feel like they're they're beholden to another organization, mm-hmm. especially those sort of renegade entrepreneurs who, who just feel like they want their cash up front. And so, how would you answer that question? You know. Why sell? Uh, why, you know, if you're going to do an earnout, why, why not just keep 100%? Um, it's, a, it's a really good question. And we have a very strong answer. And the strong answer was we absolutely loved what our new uh, owners do, the Creative Engagement Group. They're a highly intelligent, highly creative bunch of people. They get out of bed in the morning to do the same thing that we want to do, which is to develop really creative solutions for our clients and make a difference, just make a difference for our clients. And, and that's why we sold And what that helped us to do was to really speed up our strategy of growth uh, and get into into bigger companies to make that difference. Um, I I realize that that's quite a unique outcome. Um, You know, we just absolutely love the new state that we're in and the new company that we're in and what they do and the values that they have. So we just enjoyed the process and we were lucky. It's fantastic. What was it like to tell your employees (laughs) <laughs> um, it, it was a, a daunting uh, thing to do. Uh, I think it didn't really come as a complete surprise because they had met quite a few people from, from the company. Um, you know, we had presented to them, we had introduced the team. Um, it was genuinely at the beginning around a strategic partnership and due diligence around that. Um, so I don't, I don't think they were too surprised. But during that time, we, we had been able to show the team the case studies and the examples and the content and the really good stuff um, that the creative engagement group had built for their clients. So it, it just made it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the message that we had, which is we are going to become part of a much bigger group and be able to work on much bigger projects and much more creative projects was, was just so appealing. What was concerning to your employees? I think um, I think it's just natural human behaviour that change is difficult. Um, no matter how good the story is, change is is still difficult, and and people naturally feel anxious and concerned that change is happening that they're not really sure how it's going to turn out. So I think you just have to be very upfront and honest and and collaborative with your team uh, and really just look after them in, the, in those first few few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you've got to really keep repeating the message as to why it's good. How did uh, your relationship with Paul evolve or uh, as, as the as the terms of the deal became more clear, was there, were there times when you and Paul were out of alignment, maybe feeling differently about things? How did you work through those issues? I think Paul and I had set up a business and we've been running it for, for 10 years. So we're more like brothers than business partners. Um, we've been... <laughs> brothers scrap like cats and dogs, but they're, yeah. Yeah, they can do. <laughs> I think we've been through so many ups and downs over those 10 years that, um, you know, we were able to work our way through uh, the the negotiation process pretty seamlessly. You know, it is difficult. I'd been through it before, so I I probably had a little bit more experience uh, than Paul. And I I knew the depth of detail that we would end up getting into. So, um, yeah, there were times that we were um, working things out, but it, it was pretty good. Was there a general sense that, I mean, was he eager for certain terms that you were not in favor of? Or like, what was the nature of the, the, the kind of turmoil? I think the, the, the nature of the turmoil was, it, it, is this the right thing for us to do? It was more a fundamental question rather than in the detail. Um, you yeah. know, are we doing the right thing? Um, should we hold out and try and do this on our own? Should we, you know, these guys are brilliant and we can see this, but is this the right thing to do? And, and I think deep down we, we knew what the answer was. It was just human nature. 
Yeah. Are you at similar stages in your life? Uh, you know, in your trajectory, similar age, similar life situations, or are you kind of one very much older than the other? Or, you know, are you sort of similar in life stage or, or not? No, we're very similar. Paul's a couple of years old. We both, we both have family and kids around the same age. Um, yeah. You know, very, very same. The reason I ask is that can often be the, the underlying cause of some of the turmoil is, is you've got a 65-year-old and a 35-year-old and one wants to grow for 30 years and one wants to get on the golf course. And that can be an area of contention, but it doesn't sound like that was the case in your, in your age. Did you buy yourself any trophies? Uh, <laughs> some ways to mark your achievement. Uh, I like cycling. Okay. Uh, so I bought myself a really professional static training bike. Uh, you know, it was, a, it was a nice addition to my, uh, fantastic. My, Is this like on roll on those rollers that, uh, no, I'm not talking about a Peloton bike. It's, uh, it's been nice, much nicer than a Peloton bike. It's a, it's called a Wahoo. Uh, oh, I've heard of these. Yeah. Serious cycling aficionados go for that. Right. Yeah. Kind of wannabes like me have a Peloton, but serious <laughs> cyclists go for the Wahoo. Got it. Okay. So you buy yourself a, a Wahoo. Yeah. That's good. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad it worked out for you. Peter, I, I, I'm grateful for you sharing the story. One of the things that I in particular really took away from this is the importance of, I think in your own terms, punching above your weight class from a marketing perspective, which is in many ways, how you kind of rose to the attention of so many of these acquirers. So I think that was a, a really key learning. Is there, is there somewhere people can uh, learn about you or, or learn about Logic Earth or Creative Engagement Group? Is there a website you want to send people to? What's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, well, we, uh, we're still very active uh, uh, on social media. We have a really good website at logicearth.com. Um, you know, take time to visit the creative tcg.com, which is the creative engagement group because they, they do so many wonderful things. Uh, I'm on Twitter as at logic earth. Great. Great. So lots of connections there. Uh, and I think you're relatively easy to find on, on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and we'll put all that in the show notes at uh, built Peter, thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.